Hi everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello. And I'm Nick Rookrout. And today we have a special themed episode for you. We are going to be talking all about two iconic New York movies that were also big hits at the Oscars. Best Picture winners, Best Director winners, Annie Hall and Kramer vs. Kramer. I love that we're doing a New York theme pod. There are so many New York movies that I would love to talk about that we tried to fit in this episode and <laughs> reframe our discussion around, but we'll, I think, get to a lot of them later on in a little mini game. Mm-hmm. And I think just generally, straight up, I really like both of these movies, and I think they do New York justice in getting the mood right and just emulating what the city is all about. I think too, sometimes when we talk about the Oscars, especially recently with movies like The Irishman and Marriage Story, which we will talk about quite a bit today, we always say like, oh, it might be too New York for the Oscar voting crowd or talking about how Oscar voters like movies about Hollywood. They like movies about movies and themselves. But in this case, these are two incredibly popular movies that have to have that New York setting to function. And Annie Hall is an incredibly popular movie, but... It also was made by Woody Allen, and talking about a Woody Allen movie today, I think, is challenging because of, you know, what we know or don't know about his personal life and the effect that he's had on other people, in particular, women in his family. So I think we wanted to just say that at the beginning that we won't be talking about Woody Allen as much as a person here. We'll be talking much more, I think, just about this movie specifically, where it sits kind of in the canon of Best Picture winners and of New York mm-hmm. movies. But we, I think, completely understand if you don't want to listen to us talk about, I think, Woody Allen's signature film. Yeah, and this being such a big Oscar movie, there's no way around it. Like, we're going to cover it on the pod, and we're going to try to do it in the best way possible. It's hard. It's like, do you address the elephant in the room, or do you just totally ignore it? So we're trying to do that and kind of frame it in a way that takes the focus off of the negative aspects of who Woody Allen has become, basically, and focus on, like, Diane Keaton, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. who also does an amazing Mm -hmm. job. So... Yes, if you like Skip Ahead, we'll put the timestamp in the description. But without further ado, Annie Hall, released in 1977. Description here, Alvy Singer, a divorced Jewish comedian, reflects on his relationship with ex-lover Annie Hall, an aspiring nightclub singer, which ended abruptly just like his previous marriages. It's directed by Woody Allen, starring himself, Diane Keaton, Shelley Duvall, and Carol Kane, and many more guest appearances. Mm-hmm precursors here it won the dga wga it won one golden globe for best actress in a comedy musical and diane keaton actually tied with marcia mason for the goodbye girl it won five baftas for picture director actress for keaton screenplay and film editing and then at the new york film critic circle it won film director actress for keaton and screenplay and then at the la critic circle it won screenplay At the Oscars, it won four for picture, director, actress for Keaton, and screenplay. And then it was also nominated for actor for Alan, which completes the big five. So it was in a way very close to winning the big five, but also 
not, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I will say Richard Dreyfus, who won Best Actor for The Goodbye Girl, accomplishes a great feat in that movie, which is somehow being more annoying than Woody Allen is in Annie Hall. Um, it's it's really <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> I personally would have voted for John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, but mm-hmm. that can be a conversation for another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my like one big criticism as the movie went on. It was like Woody and or Alvy, they are so neurotic to the point that this is uh-huh. hard to watch and enjoy this character. <laughs> it really is a specific sort of personality and... Yeah, like he's very neurotic, the type of anxiety that he has, like it can, Mm -hmm. I think, be endearing in certain parts. But as the film goes on, it doesn't bother me nearly as much as Richard Dreyfuss in The Goodbye Girl. (laughs) Also one I haven't seen, so maybe I won't get to that (laughs) in the near future. And because we're talking a lot about best director races, our other nominees here, we had George Lucas for Star Wars, which I think is really cool. Herbert Ross for The Turning Point, Steven Spielberg for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Fred Zinneman for Julia. We polled you guys on Twitter, and the results were very close, but Woody Allen did win. You guys agreed with what the Academy decided. So do you agree with that too, or how do you feel about the Mm. director race? It's really hard. I personally would give the edge to Spielberg here for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I think. I really like this. I also have always thought of Woody Allen more as a writer than as a director, but I do think the directing choices that are made here are really strong. George Lucas, too, would be another one for me. I think what he accomplished mm-hmm. with Star Wars is something that's it's really impressive and honestly is something that like Annie Hall has stood the test of time but in another way what about you yeah I think I probably would have given the edge to George Lucas and this is hard because now we know what mega universe Star Wars has become and Mm -hmm. initially it was 20th Century Fox giving Lucas $15,000 to write this script and there's a funny line in our Inside Oscar book about Lucas saying Nobody except Disney makes movies for young people anymore. And lo and behold, Disney acquired Fox. It, you know, it's producing all of the Star Wars content and owns that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's funny that that came full circle. But I guess back in the day, people, you know, saw it differently. But I think it's still a feat in and of itself, Star Wars Episode Four. But I get that maybe this sci-fi movie wasn't going to win Best Director or Picture. Right. And we talk so often about how back then picture director splits were not really happening. The Academy would just kind of go all in on one movie. And clearly they loved Annie Hall that much that they almost gave it the big five. Speaking of Disney, though, one of my favorite scenes in Annie Hall also has a Disney moment in it with the Wicked Queen when he talks about how he always liked her instead of Snow White. And it has that little animation bit. And just briefly before we get into the movie, besides being filmed in New York and all of the locations in the movie, what makes this a New York movie to you? So I think there are many things that really make it a New York movie that we'll go through as we discuss like our favorite scenes and some trivia. But I think at its core, it has a certain level of sophistication to it, even though it is a romantic comedy. One thing that I do really love about this is that Woody Allen 
isn't afraid to include very highbrow specific references to film, to pop culture, to literature at the time. Whereas I feel like a writer or director today, a studio would tell them not to do it because it would be inaccessible. You want to appeal to the most people. But he uses a very specific type of New York intellectual thought and humor, I think, here that really works. Additionally, I think that people in New York have very different attitudes towards relationships, marriage, monogamy. And it's important, I think, that, you know, Annie is in her 30s, Alvy is in his 40s. So they're a little bit older, especially for a 70s movie to be this couple. He's already been married before. And I think that in itself is something that is very New York. What about you? I think a lot of it is attributed to Alan's writing style. And that quick pace, that hustle and bustle is just very New York. And he was born and bred in New York. So I think that just comes very naturally to him. And his ability to show that on screen through the moods of the characters and just the pacing, the editing, this like almost droll feeling, but also cutting that with humor and these adventures traveling around the city and just always on the go. I think that's to me what feels like New York. I think a lot of the dialogue and the body language also between these characters, especially of Diane Keaton, also really captures mm-hmm. New York and fashion was another big thing that really influenced Hollywood at the time and that look of not trying too hard but sophisticated in a way it just all screams New York I agree and Diane Keaton and we can start talking about her now as the titular Annie Hall her clothes in this movie they're actually hers like those aren't costumes from a costume designer like she's wearing her own clothes in this movie which is so her right she has this very quirky eccentric vibe but also she reminded me a lot of Katherine Hepburn the menswear inspired looks that she had Mm -hmm. that feels so New York to me and I read too in our Inside Oscar book that a fashion coordinator in New York on 7th Avenue said Hollywood had never had this much of an influence on fashion it was like since the godfather yeah yes yeah since the godfather and the mafioso Mm -hmm. (laughs) gangster looks very different look but (laughs) very different (laughs) she just brings so much charm to this character and i started manhattan and saw a little bit of her in that as well Mm -hmm. but it's just effortless she's the perfect actress and character who can you know be in love with this man or show in another scene that you know they're breaking up and she's over it all and she's living in California doing her own thing so as a versatile actress I think she Mm -hmm. nails it all the park totally deserves the best actress award here I love Diane Keaton one of the things that I have done during my time at home in the pandemic is actually like make my way through quite a bit of her filmography. She's one of my favorite actresses, and it's because she has the ability to just bring so much charm to her roles, but also a connection to whatever character she is and whoever she's acting with. And some people might disagree with my read on Annie Hall here, but I think in a lot of comedies, especially at the time and even moving forward, it is very much like you have this male character and it's either this like buddy comedy or it's just the shenanigans and bad behavior he gets away with in his relationships. 
And here, I think Annie feels like a three-dimensional character. And ultimately, she's the one who prevails in the end. She's the one who grows. She is really strong and resilient. And she's able to like take what she learns in this relationship and build a better life. And I think that that's really, really impressive writing, especially for back then. And very influential to the types of women, I think, that we see in future comedies, future romantic comedies in particular. Yeah, and I think what adds to what is so much fun about this movie, and I guess unexpected when you are watching it, and in terms of other rom-coms that are pretty straightforward, or at least that have been released since then, this jumps around. So we start near the end of the relationship, they're breaking up, and then we cut to the beginning. And movies are shot out of order all the time. Like, this isn't unheard of to be portraying it like this. But that's what I like about Annie is that we see the end, but then we see the beginning and she's like, la-di-da, like running into the door. (laughs) (laughs) She's so nervous around him. And also the energy of the movie just changes a little bit and Mm -hmm. keeps the viewer on their toes too. Yeah. And like you were mentioning earlier about one of the New York aspects here being how quickly everything moves. We have a very tight runtime here, which is so nice. This is about 90 minutes long. (laughs) And somehow what happens that I really love is that the writing here, you're moving through Alvi's relationships chronologically, his past relationships. But his relationship with Annie is kind of in reverse. You see it at so many different stages and their relationship actually starts at a bad point when they're having this fight. The scene when we first meet her, too, is so funny because the first thing she says is that she's in a bad mood. And he says that he's with the whole cast of The Godfather, which is so funny because she's in The Godfather, which I loved. That They didn't really care about that. He just uses that reference anyway because it's just so topical. And even with this quick pace, I never felt lost during this. I think it's very easy to know where you are and still understand fluctuating timelines and tones here. The writing is just so sharp and incisive that it feels like you're just swept up in their real world, which I really, really appreciated. And thinking about how it starts, you know, we know that their relationship is at the end. We know that they're broken up and he's going to tell us about it. And I think that that really works as well. Because we already we already know the end. We just are getting invested in the relationship, but we're not like setting up false expectations. I think my favorite scene comes when they're flirting and it's early on in the relationship. And this is very 500 Days of Summer of the reality versus imagined sequence. Mm-hmm. But it's when they're talking to each other on a balcony and they have alternate subtitles going on of what's actually happening in their heads and I had the normal subtitles playing too so this was like a total mind bender trying to read two sets of (laughs) subtitles at once but it's just so fun and inventive because it just feels very realistic. Alvi is saying all of these nonsensical very highbrow things and the fact that it's all just this subtext of I want to take you home. Like Mm -hmm. that is just relatable. Yeah, I think too. So in addition to the subtitles, I did love that. He has so many big ideas that are coming through that I think up until this point, people hadn't really seen before, especially in 
a romantic comedy. You have some scenes that feel almost like you're in a documentary. He's interacting with people on the street that you don't know if they're real people or if they're characters sometimes. You have him breaking the fourth wall. You have animation. You have split mm-hmm. screen. I love the part when Alvy and Annie are in bed together and her ghost, it looks like, like mm-hmm. gets up and is distracted yep. and like sitting in that chair. Amazing. Oh, I know what I was going to ask you. Have you ever had a moment living here in New York like the Marshall McLuhan in line at the movie scene? <laughs> <laughs> because that to me is one of the most relatable experiences i think all the time Mm -hmm. new york is a city of people watching and people listening and you're in lines hearing absurd things every single day (laughs) i don't have any that come to mind but i've rolled my eyes to myself way too many times i know (laughs) it's so funny because i watched this the other day and this scene always just like has me in stitches basically because this character in line behind him is just so obnoxious and Mm -hmm. over the top with his commentary on films and filmmaking in particular Fellini and I was on the train the other night and (laughs) this group across from me of like probably Gen Z like early Mm -hmm. 20 somethings maybe students this guy was taking them through John Carpenter's history (laughs) and these girls that were sitting like He was standing up and they were sitting down and he is like explaining to them all about Halloween and how it was filmed in California, but to make it look like Indiana or he had to buy these leaves at a garden store, but Carpenter isn't as great as Friedkin is in The Exorcist. It was this whole thing. And I was just rolling my eyes like, can you believe this right now? (laughs) And I looked at one of the girls and she just rolled her eyes like, I can't be here right now. (laughs) But it reminded me so much of that scene. Oh my God. But you really do, I think, here, like you, I mean, it happens everywhere, but I think here in particular, you do hear a lot of people just bloviating, going on and on about yeah, directors totally. and acting like they know more. It is quite funny. And then again, inventive, he turns around to the guy and starts saying, no, you actually don't know what you're talking about. And then he mm-hmm. pulls the scholar out from behind this billboard and he comes over and it's like, this is what I wish I could do. IRL. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do in that moment. I was like, I wish John Carpenter would just like get on at the next stop and like be able to sit with me and be like, no. (laughs) A couple lines that I liked. One is from like the middle-ish when they go back to Coney Island to see his house and the roller coaster Mm -hmm. and they're driving to Brooklyn and Annie Hall goes, I've never been to Brooklyn. It's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) You spoiled Manhattan girl. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that totally fits with her character, too, as this, like, waspy Midwestern girl who comes to New York, which I can kind of relate to a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) I love that Coney Island scene, though, because that is also so creative. Like, he's taking these characters from the present timeline to interact with people from his past as they were in his memory. Mm -hmm. Like Again, very, very creative. And then another one of my favorite sequences is when they go to L.A. and they arrive to this house and you hear Alvi giving this voiceover. My feet haven't touched pavement since I reached Los Angeles, which is so true that, you know, one of the worst aspects of L.A. as a city is that you have to drive everywhere. Mm -hmm. You can't walk. And that's what I love about New York. Yeah, I agree. And that's something, too, like in Marriage Story that 
Adam Driver's character, Charlie, like, laments about L.A. And he says to Henry, like, oh, you like L.A. because you like sitting? (laughs) (laughs) I love that line, Mm -hmm. too, because I think that people in L.A. or thinking about L.A. can take that in a more spiritual or, like, whimsical way to be like, oh, like, when you're in L.A., you're in this high. It's like some, (laughs) your feet don't touch the ground. It's like a dream. It's beautiful weather all the time. It's Hollywood. Oh, it's too true. And... I really felt the connection to Marriage Story with both of these movies, even Mm -hmm. Annie Hall, and maybe partly because of the New York-LA connection that they make, or I guess Mm -hmm. the separation they make between them. There's another line from this scene when they're in the house party, and they overhear this horrible screenwriter going, well, right now it's only a notion, but I think I can get money to make it into a concept and then turn it into an idea. And that's just like how convoluted <laughs> and crazy and hard it is to get into Hollywood. But mm-hmm. I feel like it just his lines are just spot on and so quick and quippy. And this is 100% what you think of when I think of Hollywood. Definitely. It has that. I used the word earlier, but it's just it's really incisive writing. And it has mm-hmm. that a little bit of that like New York turn your nose up at LA thing like East Mm -hmm. Coast better than West Coast Mm -hmm. that just adds to it I think the trip to LA makes it even more of a New York movie than if they Mm -hmm. just stayed in New York the entire time because you have that there as a contrast point and this is when we get a young Jeff Goldblum appearance too oh my gosh I know that was crazy oh another one of my favorite quotes we also get again in School of Rock from the Jack Black character but it's (laughs) Those who can't do, teach. And those who can't teach, teach Jim. That's so true. Oh, my God. And then, of course, like the quote at the very end, how the movie ends. He says, it was great seeing Annie again. I realized what a terrific person she was and how fun it was just knowing her. And I thought of that old joke, you know, the guy goes to a psychiatrist and says, Doc, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And the doctor says, well, why don't you turn him in? And the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. Well, I guess that's pretty much how I feel about relationships. You know, they're totally irrational and crazy and absurd, but I guess we keep going through it because most of us need the eggs. I do love how it ends on this very melancholic note. Mm -hmm. And I think the defeatist way that Woody Allen looks at love is just very New York too. There are Mm -hmm. 8 million people. Everyone is trying to date and it just doesn't work out. And this is like one case Mm -hmm. of that. But no matter how overly hopelessly romantic you can be i think annie hall the movie captures the very realist pragmatic way that love happens in big cities especially Mm -hmm. new york right as this is happening the final shot of the movie and he does a lot of really long takes which i really like um but -hmm. this final shot of the movie you just kind of see them from a distance and i'm pretty sure it's like near columbus circle is where that shooting location is which is pretty familiar and yeah what you're talking about it's kind of a conundrum because in any other movie I feel like that doesn't work it should be really depressing almost that their relationship ends even though I was never really rooting for them which is odd but I still (laughs) liked them but you feel good in the end it feels triumphant because she has grown from it and he you feel has come to some sort of understanding as to 
why this happens and you know that they're both going to keep going which i really like Mm -hmm. but it feels like it hits this really deep level because it seems real like that it's Mm -hmm. not this you know like we talked about with an american in paris it's not this like overly romantic done up movie ending it's like this is what happens and yeah you feel it because it's happened to everybody it's therapeutic in a way that Mm -hmm. You see these characters who are real with themselves because, I mean, maybe I'm generalizing here, but people aren't as honest as these two characters are in the movie. When you see them in therapy and they're both like, I want to break up with them, but I don't want to hurt them. And they're both thinking the same thing. And they end up saying that out loud to each other. Like, I wish that happened more. I wish that was more acceptable to do in Mm -hmm. real life, you know, because... You want to better yourself without hurting other people. But I think a lot of the time you are maybe thinking the same thing. But that was just freeing to see these characters expressing how they felt and being able to explain themselves and be adults about everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels very mature and realized like these are people who are at a point in their lives where, you know, it's that like life is too short thing and I definitely this time around saw it much more as a movie about death than a movie about love like it's kind of like it's a little depressing like there are a lot of books about death in it I mean it's incredibly funny too but there are a lot of references to like death and dying and the universe Mm -hmm. expanding right what gives him anxiety as a child in the first place that feel like a much more realistic way to look at life especially i think here new yorkers in particular have the reputation of being more like honest and meaner and just living life in a different sort of way and that i think is really present here in the script so we have a question from our listener the futurist do you think annie hall is given its due for influencing most romantic comedies after 1977 in terms of structure attitude and female lead also was diane keaton the so-called movie original manic pixie dream girl i love this question so the first part of it i do think it's given its due um it is i think regarded as one of the most influential films of all time i do think though that because of Woody Allen's reputation, I think that that does kind of damage its reputation a bit and it makes it makes people less likely to seek out this movie and less likely, I think, to unfortunately name it as being really influential because I think that it is. The things that this script pulls off, the tones, the structure, this character, they are really important. And I think without this, we don't have Noah Baumbach. We don't have a lot of the films that we have that are really similar that come later on and even like bad romantic comedies try to be Annie Hall. (laughs) I think it definitely has been given its due. I think especially newer audiences kind of fade away because of what has come out about Woody Allen. But I think up until that point, there were many years where a lot of filmmakers were influenced by him and by his work. So I think even if, you know, this is where the references end, There's so much that he's influenced up until this point that I think indirectly is still Annie Hall. So I think, you know, no matter how people think about it, it does go back to this movie. And as far as the Manic Pixie Dream Girl goes, 
I think she's better than a manic pixie dream girl. I can see where this comes from, but <laughs> ultimately, like, she isn't just this person who exists in the story for Alvy. Yes, their relationship is, like, at the center, and that's what's happening, but to me, like, she has her own goals and her own achievements and her own life outside of him, and that's what makes her different, and I think that's what makes the writing of her a lot smarter than a lot of movies that we see with Manic Pixie Dream Girls in them. I agree with that. I think there is a lot more to that character, not only in terms of the movie and the story, but also in her influence being this iconic 70s character image and kind of revolutionizing who women could be. Mm-hmm. I think I'll get into this a little bit more in Kramer versus Kramer. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It would be for screenplay. It's the main reason I revisit this movie and probably will in the future more than any other aspect. What about you? What would you give it? I would also give it screenplay. The humor, how it moves so fluidly through these different stories is why it works for me and why it really is one of my favorite movies. And very influential to the way I view the world, fortunately or unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get into Kramer versus Kramer, Nam or Bomb is back, this time with New York movies. If you haven't listened before, or if you don't remember from previous Nam or Bombs, what we do is we will run through a list of movies and we will each say whether this is a Nam, which means we think it's a good movie, or a Bomb, which means we think it's a bad movie. We'll start off easy here. Black Swan. Nom. Yep. Nom for me too. You've got mail. I just watched this a couple weeks ago. This is a nom. I liked it. This is a quintessential New York movie for me. Like easily near the top of the list. Nom for me. Next we have Along Came Polly. I'm going to say nom here too. (laughs) (laughs) One of my wackiest noms for sure. Yeah, I'm going to say bomb here. Um... (laughs) I feel like we're flipped today. (laughs) I'm being much harsher. We're not well. Birdman. I'm going to say Nom. I think my opinion of it has soured because it won Best Picture, but I'll Mm -hmm. still say Nom. I was almost expecting a bomb from you. I I considered it. (laughs) I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I'll go Nom again. Mr. Deeds. Not Mr. Deeds goes to town. Mr. (laughs) Deeds. (laughs) I mean, it could be either because I'm saying bomb. (laughs) I am also saying bomb. The apartment. Easy nom. We will give this movie Mm -hmm. its due on a future episode for sure. Definitely. Yep. This is a nom for me too. After Hours. Also a recent watch and a nom. Nom for me too. Catherine O'Hara. Amazing. One of our favorites. Shiva Baby. This is a nom and still one of my favorite watches of 2021. Mm-hmm. The energy is so nerve-wracking. It's so good at what it's trying to do. I This is a nom for me. The woman in the window. <laughs> I still haven't seen this. I Oh my God. There was so much negative press. I said no. <laughs> I think you should still do it. Oh. It's worth it. <laughs> it is a bomb, but it is more entertaining than a good amount of the movies I've seen this year, including one that I watched last week that premiered at Cannes, so. (laughs) (laughs) How about Can You Ever Forgive Me? This is a nom. One of the best surprises I've had at the movie theater. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. Yeah, this is a nom for me. Very quintessential New York, especially when they're in Julius's the bar in the village. Hustlers. I'm going to say bomb here. Ooh. <laughs> I take. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say nom. I think snubbing J-Lo was a really, really bad decision in the history of <laughs> bad decisions for nominations. I think I would watch it again, but I would probably still disagree in that she's like playing herself, basically. I don't agree with that, but I'm happy for you that you liked Happy Bates <laughs> and Richard Jewell more. <laughs> I don't think either of them should be nominated. I, that's not who I wanted in there. Well, that's who you got. Okay, Night at the Museum. My nostalgia is too powerful here. I will say nom. Yeah, that's my reasoning. It's a nom. Inside Lewin Davis. I'll say nom. I definitely have to watch this again. It's been a long time. It's very good. I will also say nom. We're having this Oscar Isaac renaissance, and this is definitely my favorite performance of his. Extremely loud and incredibly close. I feel weird saying bomb for this one, but... (laughs) bomb (laughs) not even viola could save it for you no no (laughs) it's one of one of the more confounding best picture nominations of recent times Hmm. i'm gonna say nom i've nommed way too many things today but (laughs) well we have more coming so (laughs) more chances for you (laughs) i don't know why i enjoyed the cheesiness of it when i saw it but I do want to read the book and then go back and watch it. I have a feeling mm. this would be a bomb. I, I think so. <laughs> okay, next we have Brooklyn. Maybe my biggest nom on this list. Just such a great movie. I'll also give it a nom. I do really like this one. How about The Squid and the Whale? This is a nom for me. This is my favorite Noah, I think. This is my favorite early Noah movie. So I'll give it a nom here. What about Midnight Meat Train? <laughs> I'll say bomb here. This just goes in the like campy horror genre, which is fun. Mm-hmm. When you texted me to ask me if I'd seen this, and I was like, yeah, Bradley Cooper's in it. <laughs> I have to give it a nom. <laughs> Requiem for a Dream. This is going to be my shocking bomb. I hate this movie and what he does to the women in this movie. Yeah. I figured your distaste for Aronofsky would come out at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I gave Black Swan a nom. That's true. I'm good there. I will give this a nom. I mean, I'm sure most people would, but I can't. I can't. The Jennifer Connelly character, the Ellen Burstyn of it all, ugh, just upsetting. The Muppets take Manhattan. Definitely a tonal shift here. (laughs) (laughs) This is a nom for me. I got to see this in Bryant Park as one of their like summer movie nights and it was just so cute watching this mm-hmm. with the Chrysler building in the background is just very New York. Mm-hmm. I'll also give it a nom. I think it's very cute. And Francis Ha. Easy nom. This is again like quintessential New York black and white Greta Gerwig. Love it. Favorite Greta Gerwig performance. Favorite Noah Baumbach movie. There's just so much angst. I love this so much. It's a nom. What about Trainwreck? Oh my god, wait. Have I seen this? I feel like I have, but... The Amy Schumer movie? Yeah, and Bill Hader. I think the fact Mm -hmm. that I'm forgetting is not a good sign. I'm going to go with a bomb here. (laughs) It's a bomb for me too, but a nom for LeBron. (laughs) Oh my god. 
I am very excited for Amy's performance in The Humans, though. I am too. And this is apparently a New York movie, Avengers Endgame. The way that people are going to come for me because I gave some bad movies noms here, but I'm going to say bomb. This doesn't work as a New York movie. This is like a CGI movie. So I'm going to say bomb. I feel like a lot of the Marvel movies are New York movies because some scene takes place in some random, I don't know, yeah, CGI background. You know, you have like Spider-Man's. Yeah, I think the original Avengers was filmed in Cleveland, and I think that was supposed to be New York. But now they're like headquarters is in Jersey, I think. I don't know. Again, The Marvel yeah. headquarters? You mean like the headquarters, like where they shoot the movie or like no, where no, the no. people... <laughs> In the movie, it's like the Avengers have their headquarters. I think it's in Jersey, or at least WandaVision took place in Jersey. I'm not the one to ask. Um, All of that to say bomb, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and last we have Soul. This is a nom. I think it works well as a New York movie and just as a movie in general. I agree, and I think that the animation actually does a really good job of capturing New York. So this is a nom from me. Okay. And we've talked about some New York movies before. When Harry Met Sally, we did our Valentine's Day podcast. And we'll definitely be covering more New York movies as we get through Oscar season because we have New York Film Festival coming. I think the one I'm most excited for this year is the new Mike Mills movie, Come On, Come On, which has a lot of great Francis Ha vibes to it. Definitely. Was that filmed in New York? Again, it's a New York, L.A movie oh wow. it seems from the trailer amazing <laughs> and our next movie we'll be talking about is kramer versus kramer description here ted kramer's wife leaves him allowing for a lost bond to be rediscovered between ted and his son billy but a heated custody battle ensues over the divorced couple's son deepening the wounds left by the separation this movie was directed by robert benton it stars meryl streep dustin hoffman jane alexander and justin henry Precursors here, it won the DGA, WGA, four Golden Globes, including Best Picture Drama, Screenplay, Actor Drama for Hoffman, and Supporting Actress for Streep. It won five at LAFCA, so LA Film Critics, same wins as the Oscars, which we'll get to in a minute. And then at the New York Film Critics Circle, it won Best Film, Actor for Hoffman, and Supporting Actress for Streep. It was shut out at the BAFTAs, but that doesn't really seem to matter. And it won five Oscars, Picture, Director, Actor for Hoffman, Supporting Actress for Streep, and Screenplay. So similar to the Big Five in a way, if they would have Mm -hmm. given Streep more screen time, they could have won the Big Five. And it would have been a better movie. Anyway, (laughs) nominated for four others, including Supporting Actor for Justin Henry, Supporting Actress for Jane Alexander, Cinematography, and Film Editing. It's an alternative Big Five winner, so to me, that does count. We can get into the street placement and supporting here and how her character is portrayed. But going into the Best Director category briefly, the other nominees here were Francis Ford Coppola for Apocalypse Now, Bob Fosse for All That Jazz, Edward Molinaro for La Caja Folle, and Peter Yates for Breaking Away. And after polling all of you guys, there was a tie between Fosse and Coppola. So to you all, the Academy did not get it right. I think this is a great list of movies. And I'm just surprised Apocalypse Now didn't sweep everything. For what we've seen throughout Oscar history, 
and how epic of a movie this is. But now that I think about it, was this because he had just won for The Godfather? I think that's part of it. I think that also this was a notoriously difficult production and shoot. I don't know if that probably came into it. It seemed like the Academy this year just wanted like a standard drama that was not this like auteur-led film, which is super interesting, I think. At the time, Kramer versus Kramer was a phenomenon. I did not know this, that it was the number one box office hit of 1979. And this was back when the Academy, I think, was much more eager to award what was popular and kind of align with Mm -hmm. what audiences were thinking. But it made more money than things like Alien, Rocky II, Amityville Horror, which came out that year. It's kind of crazy. Like, imagine if Marriage Story made more money than Endgame. That's what this is like. That's what audiences were like in the 70s, which is just crazy to me. And it was the only movie that year to make over $100 million. Wow. Yeah, it's just kind of sad because these sort of like mid-budget original dramas for adults just aren't really a thing anymore in our IP-dominated culture where movies are made mm-hmm. for everybody, supposedly. Back to Apocalypse Now quickly. It is odd to me, though, that it didn't win also because like... This feels much more of the time in a sense of like the new Hollywood coming up. It's a super risky thing. And I feel like they like doing that in director more so than in picture or in other categories. So it feels like a category where there could have been a split. I would have voted for Fosse Mm. though, just to be Mm. candid. I haven't seen all that jazz yet. And I think we'll end up doing some sort of 79 pod in the future. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited to see this. I did do some research in Google, like why did Kramer versus Kramer win at the Oscars this year? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the discussion, there were a couple articles that I found really interesting. One was a USA Today article by Jim McCarrens and another in The Guardian by Scott Tobias. But it talked about how divorce rates were at their highest point ever in history. Mm. So this really struck a chord with audiences. And even though there were fantastical elements to like the court scenes and the cop-out ending and villainizing Joanna. We'll get to all of these things. It was also a point when, I don't know how to say this without sounding like some haughty white male figure. <laughs> oh God. But it also quoted this family studies professor, Angie Shock, who called this point in history an emergent men's movement that was challenging restricted gender-defined family roles and the traditional male figure and making Ted into this likable emotional father who you can identify with again we can get to the issues with all of that and how all of that makes this look one-sided and unfairly biased against Joanna Mm -hmm. and the like overly simplistic ending but I think I started to understand more of you know where this movie was coming from why it did so well at the box office, which is just so, so shocking for Mm -hmm. a small drama about divorce. Like even today, a hundred million would be insane for some smaller, maybe even indie movie like that. Right. Yeah. So what you said, I think too, about like this like men's movement, the book that it's based on by Avery Corman he kind of seems like he's a men's rights advocate from what I've read. Like, what about dads? What about us? And it's like, whatever. Okay. Anyway, this screenplay was very toned down 
um, in comparison to the book. Additionally, this review from 1979 from Vincent Canby in the New York Times that I'll probably cite through our discussion, he said that Kramer vs. Kramer is a Manhattan movie, yet it seems to speak for an entire generation of middle-class Americans who came to maturity in the late 60s and early 70s, sophisticated in superficial ways, but still expecting the fulfillment of promises made in the more pious Eisenhower era. So, yeah, I think this movie just appealed to a very specific generation of people. That's why it feels a little Mm -hmm. bit dated now. But at the time, I think, yeah, it really struck a chord. It's just funny imagining people just like talking about this everywhere. So weird to me. But I, I kind of love that. So getting into this as a New York movie, besides the location, what makes it a New York movie for you? To me, there are a lot of comparisons to Annie Hall here in the atmosphere and the moods of not only the characters and apart from the New York locations, the settings of the scenes, you know, we're in Mm -hmm. buildings a lot. And I think being in these enclosed spaces feels very Mm -hmm. New York too. You know, you have small Mm -hmm. apartments and huge high-rise buildings. And in particular, the scene when Ted is making Billy breakfast for the first time and he's trying to do like five things at once. I feel like I can relate to that. I think multitasking is something I've definitely had to improve having lived in New York. And thinking about that, it's like, like living here, do you ever see parents with children that are like Billy's age and you just think like how do you do this like how hard would it be to take Mm -hmm. a child around this city like it just I cannot imagine so I feel like instantly the stakes are just higher everything is it's louder it's busier it's crowded all of these things that just make it harder for a parent alone to get a child where they need to go we have so many great Central Park scenes that I do really love and want to mention here. It makes Central Park look great. And I think you mentioning the office buildings too. I think a lot of that is due to the DP on this movie, who is Nestor Almendros. He worked with Malik for Days of Heaven, Truffaut for the story of Adele H. Romare for Claire's Knee. He shot some really, really beautiful films. And the fact that he's shooting this, I feel like it's a very unique and beautiful way to capture Manhattan. I think you get a lot more depth in the shots. And we should mention also the great Gordon Willis shot Annie Hall. So we have some iconic DPs working on these movies that I think make New York look that much better. I will also say for this one, one thing that I noticed that made it feel much more like a New York movie than just the locations is just Ted's job. He's an ad man who gets this new account, and from the beginning, we kind of know, like, this is something that he could lose, and his job is really important to him. And it reminded me that, you know, we're not that far away in 1979 from the Mad Men era, and this feels very New York and very specific to a time in the city where gender dynamics really are much different than they are today, where... You know, he says multiple times in this movie that he's bringing home the bacon, which I thought was funny. And we don't really know this until near the end, but Joanna, her career was very important to her too. And that's part of the problem that exists in their marriage is this shifting attitude towards gender dynamics at home and towards work. And I think that's Mm -hmm. only further emphasized by like the workaholic attitude 
of a place like New York and of a place like an ad agency. What does he say? He's like, I'm here for you like 25 hours a day, eight days Mm -hmm. a week, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's so unhealthy. (laughs) Yeah. Like, please have a better relationship to your workplace. Yes. And then he works at home and he ignores Billy and his family. And obviously that's Mm -hmm. how all of this came around. But I think I've already been disillusioned by having to put your all into your job and only your job. But I think this idea brings about another New York aspect of you wanting to get ahead in the world and kind of being a shark. But also there are so many things going on at the same time and you want to be at three places at once. So figuring out how you can manage your schedule, everything going on, that's very hard to do in this city. So one thing I think that is just confusing to me here is that we really don't know anything about Joanna. Like They really, I think, do a disservice to Meryl Streep's character here because she doesn't really give specifics for why she leaves. She just kind of blames herself. It's very vague. And then I kind of think like, okay, is she supposed to be a villain? Like, how are we supposed to see her? How are we supposed to know her? And then because of this, it kind of legitimizes his confusion about her leaving. And then we pivot to just this like, oh, look at him trying to make French toast. Like, oh, this is so hard for him. This man trying to be domestic who has Mm -hmm. kind of ignored his family. And I'm just like, okay, I need to know more about her. And I don't know why we don't get that. And I think part of that also comes from the fact that, you know, when we have these scenes where Ted and Billy are figuring out their relationship and I started to really like him and sympathize with him. And I felt really badly for him about like, you know, today's work culture would be so different. A modern boss would legally have to help him basically here. He would not get fired for being a single parent right? Like that's just so different. So I started to feel a lot of sympathy for him. I started to feel really sorry for Billy because I felt like he wasn't getting the proper attention and especially for going through this emotional trauma. And at the same time, I was just like, what is happening with Meryl? Like, where is she? And I feel like that's something that Noah Baumbach did a better job of in Marriage Story is really giving the Scarlett Johansson character a story and Mm. reasons for doing what she did. Yeah. And making her a real character and have actual Mm -hmm. depth. Something else I really liked from the guardian article I mentioned earlier is that it asks like, what if the movie was framed through Joanna's eyes and Mm -hmm. we kind of had this like wild sequence or journey of her finding herself because that's all we know of is that, She went to California and found herself and she's happier now and she has a therapist Mm -hmm. and she realized she's not a horrible mother. She just was overwhelmed and unloved and unappreciated. Mm -hmm. So I think I feel the same way as you did. I got wrapped up in the movie because I feel like it is very well paced and it's a really Mm -hmm. easy movie to watch. It's not really asking much of the viewer. It's telling you straight up what's happening. And I thought Dustin Hoffman was like an easy single working father figure. But also when he was struggling, I think that's maybe also why audiences like this or maybe mid 20s to 40s men also like this movie because, you know, they showed him struggling, which, yes, I know is like we don't need this. You know, this is (laughs) (laughs) what we've had for all of 
history, but it could be what have resonated. On the other hand, yes, I wanted more Meryl Streep, but I also think in like the three minutes in the beginning, she kills it. Like she knocks it out of the park. She yeah. does everything she can with these lines mm-hmm. and these roles. Like the crying yeah. is just so easy for her. And I loved every second. I thought she was so deserving mm-hmm. here. Yeah. I mean, talk about elevating a role. This is my favorite Meryl besides Sophie's Choice. Like this is like peak mm-hmm. Meryl to me where I'm like, this is why you are known as one of the greatest actresses of all time because you can do this. You can make a movie yours when you have as little screen time and a character that is not well written. She did that. And I love that about her. I think with Dustin Hoffman too, I mean, this is a wonderful performance from him. He's so charismatic and believable in this role. Kind of troubled production facts that I read about, you know, his method acting going a little too far. Um, where he slapped Meryl without her knowing that was coming and he kind of bullied Justin Henry a bit to get him to cry, which to me tells me that this is for better, for worse, it's his movie. My thing is like, where was Benton here? Where was the director? Like this feels like Dustin Hoffman is controlling a shoot. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's very much like who he was and like how he was as an actor. You hear stories about like Kubrick being really hard on his actors to like get things out of them or Fincher doing many takes, people like that. And it's like mm-hmm. Hoffman is doing that here, which just feels odd to me that it's not the director who's pushing his actors to get there. It's the other actor yeah. that's in the scene being like, oh, I'm method acting. This is why I'm pushing you, pushing you, pushing you. The 70s were a different time. <laughs> Hoffman also didn't sign on for the first few drafts. And eventually when he did, he demanded that he be able to improvise, that he would have extra takes, and that he would oversee the editing of the movie. There it is. I feel like that's unheard of. So I think, yeah, it definitely was like Hoffman's movie in a way. But also I read that when Meryl first met Dustin. Mm -hmm. Did you read this in the book? No. (laughs) God, When Meryl first met Dustin at an audition, she hated him. They did not get off on good terms. She was on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen on Bravo, (laughs) Meryl was, and he was playing Shag, Mary Kill with her, and he gave her Dustin Hoffman, Jack Nicholson, and Robert Redford. She killed Dustin? She killed Dustin. (laughs) Oh, my God. Isn't that good? LOL. I mean, I feel like that is that would be like the common response, but you got to marry Robert Redford. I mean, the other two, that's really hard. Yeah, that's the easy answer. (laughs) (laughs) And about the Oscars briefly, the actual ceremony, Dustin did give this really rousing emotional speech that even Johnny Carson ended by saying, I think we can all agree that was beautifully said. And Throughout award season, he was really troubled by Justin Henry losing all of these awards. And so he talked about like praising actors for all of the work that they're doing, not on the screen, and also all of the cast and crew that don't win awards or aren't nominated or never see a stage, really. And it was really endearing. Super long. I'm not reading it. But one other thing that happened after the Oscars is apparently Meryl left her Oscar in the ladies' bathroom. And someone screamed, somebody left an Oscar in here. And she's like, oh, my God. (laughs) 
Meryl. Speaking of Justin Henry and you mentioning like Dustin Hoffman wanting him to win awards, I really love the scene with the ice cream where he eats the ice cream, mm. even though yeah. <laughs> he tells him not to. That scene was all improvised. Oh, well. Yeah. That's cool. The director decided to leave it in. Smart of Justin Henry to do that too, I guess. I know, right? So another thing about like the New York setting that I thought was really interesting that came up in again that Vincent Canby review in the New York Times, which is actually titled East Side Story. He said specifically, there may be no place in the world that seems quite as civilized and reassuring as Manhattan's East Side. When you're feeling good and have money in your pocket, it's expensive, but value is given. It's a privilege simply to look into the windows of Madison Avenue boutiques that keep their doors bolted against customers who don't measure up. Everything seems forever. Hmm. That is like definitely the vibe that we are put into in this movie with this Vivaldi piece that kind of becomes the theme of the movie and mm-hmm. i think it is important to note that we are in a wealthier part of new york i think some of the movies that the oscars recognizes or that came out in the period around new york don't focus on this type of life but i think this understanding kind of where they are financially is crucial to understanding this story and thinking about like their salaries, I looked up $31,000, the salary that Joanna is making in her new job. That's equivalent mm-hmm. to over $100,000. Oh, wow. So it's not like when you think of $31,000 today, it's a big increase back then. Hmm. That's the type of life that they were living. Was she working when they were living together and when they were married? No. So she hadn't worked for, I think, eight years, they said. Um, okay. She had worked previously. But he was working then, and he made, I think, 33000 It was like 2000 yeah. more than her new job. I guess if she was working before, I missed that bit because, like, she is gone for 18 months, not having worked for eight years, and then gets a $100,000 job. Like, is that realistic? It's a little unrealistic. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I, I was wanna... kind of thinking that. I'm like, I would love to take an eight-year break from work, maybe, <laughs> and then just, like, go back to work. Be able to get another one. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> but then on the flip side, so like, yes, you know, their life is good financially. When things are bad, and this is from the same review, he says, Manhattan's East Side immediately reflects the unhappiness of an upwardly mobile people who have no idea where they're going or why. Everything is ridiculously expensive, walls are thin, and ceilings low. That's just, again, it's like what once felt full of opportunity now feels claustrophobic to this particular population in this particular area of New York. Mm -hmm. It's just the duality of New York City, really. And I think that Hoffman's best scene in the movie is actually the scene when he's demanding the job at the Christmas party. Mm -hmm. Yep. You can feel his commanding presence very much so in that scene and his desperation there because he's fighting this custody battle that he needs whatever job he will take. Mm -hmm. And I felt a shift where, you know, it wasn't that he wanted to win. It wasn't that he wanted to beat Joanna. It was, even though he had this list of cons (laughs) that he made, (laughs) it was something that he wanted this job in order to keep his relationship with Billy. Yeah. I was expecting that list to come back and bite him in the ass. And like Billy saw it and he would have been like, where am I? I expected so many things to come back to him, and they just (laughs) never do. I thought for sure that 
Billy seeing the naked woman in the hallway <laughs> Trauma. would come up in court? Absolutely not. No, just never mentioned again. <laughs> Going back for a second, you mentioned Madison Avenue. Do you think Uncut Gems portrays New York and the East Side similarly? I think the Diamond District feels like already just, it just feels a little grittier and like we have potential for more bad behavior and some (laughs) dealings in an underbelly of a city, whereas this feels very waspy to me. (laughs) Yes, it shows their struggles and how hard life has become, Mm -hmm. but we're not getting like the gambling and the... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The violence. (laughs) We're getting Central Park bike rides and Meryl lurking. Kramer is very much more Upper East Side, so it's a little Mm -hmm. different. But I think East Side behavior, there's a little crossover. I did like with Meryl in that cafe just watching like her body language. Mm -hmm. Again, she doesn't have any lines. She's just looking. But that look Mm -hmm. and the way her arms are placed on that window, it's like you see Uh she's like so desperate to see Billy. Mm Mm-hmm. And is very emotional just watching. Yeah. How did you feel about the Jane Alexander character? I really liked her. I thought she was great as the supporting actress, a friend. I thought she was his sister. I thought that's what the connection was and they just lived in the same building. LOL. (laughs) And I think the court scene just brings out the best acting in all of them too. All of the characters. You have Joanna bawling her eyes out and then Margaret as well like starts to well up. And I think the scene itself is kind of annoying and how they're making this a very one-sided winner takes all. Billy has no say and everything is black and white kind of. But I think the acting is amazing. I agree. I love Jane Alexander in this too. She's one of my favorite like supporting actresses from the time. But it's just kind of odd. Like at the beginning, she's friends with Meryl. She's friends with Joanna. And she seems to kind of understand her and where she's coming from. But then like over the course of the movie, as she becomes friends with Ted more so and spends more time with him and Billy, it just felt weird to me that she didn't help Joanna in the courtroom really. Like she didn't fill in any of these gaps. And I feel like it's like... Okay, you're the only other woman really in this story. And I just expected her in the script to fill in some of those missing pieces to be less vague, I mm-hmm. suppose. But instead, she's just kind of like, he's really good. He's changed, etc. And mm-hmm. I'm like, that wasn't what the screenwriters had in mind. <laughs> Talking about Meryl in the courtroom really quickly. I think she deserved two Oscars for this movie because <laughs> she wrote her scene. Like, her speech in the courtroom, she did that. That was her, because she thought they were being too hard on the character. They were villainizing her. She wanted her to be more sympathetic, because she understood this character, because, of course, it's Meryl. So she did that. It works because she's so good in that role, and she really authored every part of this script that made her a sympathetic character. So I feel like that's, that's a pretty big achievement. And for her to just sit there and, like, continuously be slut-shamed and just put down, I know it's such a product of the time, but it's, like, it's really hard for a character that we don't understand or know. And, like, how am I supposed to feel about her? I don't know her. Yeah. But, of course, because of Meryl, I'm, like, I support you. (laughs) I really didn't expect the lawyer to badger her in that way to make her look like a bad person in that 
not having a permanent boyfriend made her an unreliable source. Mm-hmm. And 100%, you're right. I think that is very much of the time. Again, just like a totally biased movie and viewpoint of, yeah. you know, Ted's the better character. But I do still like this movie a lot. Like, I, I understand where it's coming from. It's just fascinating to look at, especially because I think we've had movies that feel very much like they put a lot of intention into them. And it's very clear that Noah watched Kramer versus Kramer and was like, this is what I'm going to add. Mm-hmm. And this is what I'm going to keep the same, basically, <laughs> um, because there are so many similarities there. But I'm wondering, I guess, how it was for viewers at the time. Like, did they have challenges filling in the gaps mm-hmm. for the Meryl character? Did it matter? Was it just so new and such a strong drama for them that they didn't care like I'm just curious because it's clear that they really liked it how do you feel about the ending of this movie I've kind of hinted at this throughout but I hate how it's so black and white and I mean in a way it reveals this flaw in the court system one in the way that Joanna wins as the mother getting full custody but then two in the way that she backs out again and says no I want you to have him I think both of those just sat wrong with me I get it it's like an easy ending for people to understand and to continue to understand Ted as this father character who's Mm -hmm. grown with Billy and this father-son bond that can't be broken now but I think this is just a total gray area and I don't know what did you think of the ending I feel like the ending of this movie is part of the reason why it won Best Picture. I feel like based on the 70s movies that I've watched and just how I think about American films at the time, the closing elevator doors, her giving the reason that he's already home, that type of ending for audiences, I'm sure, just brought all of the tears and really sat well with them. I think we're used to like getting more answers and having things yeah. like just end differently to put it simply but i think that this really would have worked for audiences back then it ended on a note that you know they had a lot to talk about i did love the parallel between the beginning and the ending and how they mirrored mm-hmm. each other i did really like that but the actual plot that was happening i did not like mhm Another thing about this movie and where it sits historically and its connection to New York, I think that's kind of cool is that, you know, we're in 79. As we head into the 80s, we get movies like Working Girl and 9 to 5. We're kind of at this cusp of like women in the workforce being a big theme. Mm -hmm. So the idea that Joanna gets this well-paying job and that her career is something that's really important to her, I think that that is really of the time too. And of where films are headed and in what women are thinking about. And New York is kind of ground zero, I feel like, for that attitude. This would be a great double feature with 9 to 5. <laughs> it would. Now I'm also thinking about Meryl being in 9 to 5. Like, what role could she have had in that? <laughs> okay, so if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I think it's probably pretty obvious by now, but I would... Definitely give Best Supporting Actress to Meryl Streep. She's phenomenal in this movie. And I would do the same. So on our last segment, we're going to go through some other New York movies that we didn't talk about today. And I'm going to give some recommendations of movies from the 70s that I really love that happened to take place in New York since the decade that we talked about today is definitely my favorite, I think, as far as American films go. 
And while I've actually really liked a lot of the 70s movies we've talked about recently, I just haven't seen as many movies from this decade. So I'm going to be listing five New York movies that I want to see. So these five are all nominated for Oscars. So we will maybe at some point talk about some of these in some capacity. The first that we keep bringing up is Alan J. Pakula's Clute featuring Donald Sutherland and Jane Fonda in a Best Actress winning performance. Highly recommend this one. Saturday Night Fever is another one. This definitely shows a different side of New York than the one that we talked about today. John Travolta actually got a lone Best Actor nomination for this movie, which is kind of bizarre that that happened. Always makes me think of like Jeff Bridges Mm -hmm. for Crazy Heart, which is the example we bring up now. But Disco, Brooklyn... Highly recommend. Also, Three Days of the Condor. I love this movie. It's a thriller with Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway. Robert Redford just looks amazing in it, too. He's wearing really nice tweed coats. It's a Christmas movie. Got an editing nomination. Another one that we brought up today is Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. I love the way that this is directed. Roy Scheider also gives an excellent performance here. I hope that we will talk about this in some way, whether it's talking about Fosse or that year at the Oscars. And the last one is Serpico. I feel like I couldn't make this list without mentioning Al Pacino. And he has so many. We've talked about Dog Day Afternoon before on our 1975 Oscar Rewind, so you can go back and listen to that one. But um, this is an underrated Pacino performance for sure. And another Sidney Lumet movie. And I'll start off my list with another Al Pacino movie, One that was initially panned by the gay community, and I'm very intrigued to find out why. I mean, I think I can guess, but this is Cruising. I watched this this year as part of the Criterion Challenge, so I would love to talk to you about this at some point. It is wild. (laughs) Another of mine is Saturday Night Fever, which I started to watch and was totally invigorated by the disco soundtrack and finding John Travolta charming. So I'm excited to finish this one. The next two that are on my list are on the Criterion Channel's New York Stories collection of New York movies. I think there are like 60 films on this list, but these are Man Push Cart and In the Cut. I think two very different movies. In the Cut, we might cover when we talk about Jane Campion and The Power of the Dog. And my final movie, just for fun, I think... Saturday Night Fever is the only one with an Oscar nom, but this is Uptown Girls with Brittany Murphy and Dakota Fanning. I also love the Billy Joel reference, but definitely just like a fun Mm -hmm. pick. I love that. I saw that when it came out and now I want to rewatch it. I had so much fun talking about New York movies today. I love a good New York movie. And these two were so interesting to discuss as, you know, this time capsule looking at the late 70s, thinking about two really big hits, both with audiences and at the Oscars. So I'm glad that we got to talk about them today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they capture one side to New York. I'm interested if you listeners would have chosen two different movies to talk about. And let us know what's on your list you want- of favorite New York watches. And as a little teaser for what's to come in October, because we can't wait for our horror movie month we have a connection between cruising and the exorcist so more than just friedkin being the director but what cruising is based on and a particular cast member of the exorcist so you should watch cruising before we do that episode so we can talk about that (laughs) okay (laughs) 
And another little teaser, another fun New York movie we didn't mention in Namor Bomb is Rear Window. Love it. And another type of spooky. We have some interesting movies to cover in September. On our next episode, we will be talking about a number of (laughs) fall releases that we just got. One that I will just tell you now I really liked, Malignant. We'll also be talking about The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Blue Bayou, Cry Macho, and Dear Evan Hansen. And of course, if any of these have any Oscar potential. Just off the bat, I hope October is a much better movie month than (laughs) September has been. I will leave it at that for now. We're kind of full speed ahead into award season, into lots mm-hmm. of new releases, but we will also keep doing these retrospectives. We love your feedback and thank you all so much for listening. If you liked our episode and our show, feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Oscar Wilde Pod. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye.